Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. Very few, if any, professionals in any occupation can confidently predict the beginning or the end of a long-term trend. The best we can do is realize where we are in a trend. Are we at the beginning, more toward the middle, or more toward the end? That being said, many can get comfortable that a trend, once it's noticed, will continue. In brief, it's more comfortable to enjoy a favorable trend than to consider that it won't go on forever. Weather trends are maybe the easiest to consider and the seasonal cycles in a specific location the easiest to anticipate. But financial trends and so-called cycles are far different than weather in that weather is importantly determined by nature. More specifically, as we all know, weather is primarily determined by physics in the context of Earth's rotation, distance from the sun, ocean and forest sizes, and so forth. Economic and financial trends have far more variables than weather and are far more challenging as mother nature is, in this example, replaced by human nature. Financial trends and cycles are importantly determined by people and their behaviors, consumers, politicians, central bankers, business people, and so forth. Expectations of future financial market conditions and our resulting lifestyles, including retirement savings, are both a function of behaviors of millions of people that add up to consumer trends, but are a function of widespread confidence, which drives new business investment and jobs creation. Add to this cauldron the small number of leaders who have the brute power to change interest rates, the supply of money, trade regulations, government spending and borrowing, and even feelings of daily security. Fortunately, history is our guide and data is our friend. Despite every economic cycle and the differences among cycles, they each have unique characteristics and we've learned a lot from those past characteristics and relationships. A most important lesson now, in my view, is to remove ourselves from the daily twists and turns and instead focus on patterns and economic relationships. Since our prior podcast, little in terms of economic and financial trends has really changed. However, the day-to-day volatility of human nature is in full display. For example, the most recent consumer price index, which itself is less than precise, showed only an 8.5% increase from July of last year through July of this year. That's an improvement from the prior month, which was June to June of 9.1%. It seems that investors readily concluded that the Fed is successfully orchestrating a soft landing and inflation issues will soon vanish. This is a premature expectation in terms of long-term inflation trends will soon go away and be replaced by new news, which is pushing investors quickly to the other side of the boat. And we'll talk about some of the reasons why I say that. We'll know more next month as we do every month. But in the meantime, I'm not buying the hope that inflation is heading down. Here are just some of my reasons, but you know more if you've been a ardent listener of our past podcasts. Once again, these reasons are facts and data and experiences that differs from Fed or U.S. government 
agency announcements of a single number, like the Consumer Price Index, or where we're going. For example, energy in the past month has had a counter-trend move down. Oil prices have been dropping as Russia now appears to be satisfying the energy demands of China and India. New pipelines from Siberia to China are in the process of activation, so the Russia-China bloc is growing while encouraging India to join. China's COVID policies have decreased their short-term needs for oil, coal, and metals, but now China is once again gearing up, and demand for these resources is returning quickly. Add to this picture that the present administration is making up the 1 million barrels per day of lower oil production in the United States by selling a like amount from the country's strategic petroleum reserve. This cannot continue for the long term as the total reserve would be completely gone in less than two years if it did continue. OPEC has officially said that it will not make up this difference in the United States. Moving on, across the oceans. Europe is in a recession, and both the European Union and Britain are experiencing historically high levels of inflation. Despite these recessions, the price of electricity, as a key example, has doubled this summer in France and Germany. The European Union's main producers that are having to deal with the doubling of electricity production are in the manufacturing and packaged goods sector. This fact doesn't include the lack of natural gas moving to Germany in particular. So the doubling of electricity prices in France and Germany, and we have the data on that, we know that's happening, I think is occurring throughout the European Union with no let up in sight. Additionally, the most recent U.S. producer price index that was released several days ago is up 9.8% for July over July. And that's despite the summer's oil price declines. As you know, this index is an early warning signal because the producer price index increases ultimately go into the future consumer price index. So producer price index up close to 10% in July with lower energy costs. In the last two podcasts, I brought up the Empire State Manufacturing General Business Conditions Index. That's a mouthful. We covered this in the prior podcast. And the amazing part about this is it consistently indicates problems that directly move into the recessionary environment. I've not really read that the press has covered this, but the Empire State Manufacturing Index I mentioned fell sharply to a reading of minus 31.3, And that's down from July's reading of 11.1. This is a huge increase. The data missed expectations as economists were looking for the index to fall to a positive 5.1. Again, it went to a negative 31.3. This is highly significant for future economic conditions as we've dropped now past the low points that we saw in both the dot-com bust and the 08-09 Great Recession. So take heed. The speed of recent drops in this index has never been seen before. Manufacturing in the New York region has fallen to its lowest level since 2019, when activity ground to a halt at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's reported that, quote, this was the second largest monthly decline in history of the index and among the lowest levels in the survey's history. 
Pretty much all measurements of employee compensation show recent increases above 5% in terms of raises and growing, while full-time employment is beginning to show weakness. In brief, future wage inflation seems alive and well. On the unemployment rate, yes, it's reported close to 3.2%, but employment and unemployment or lagging indicators. More specifically, past recessions have been immediately preceded by a low unemployment rate. So this does not provide any convincing evidence that we are moving in a healthy direction. In fact, it's expected that prior to a significant recession that the unemployment rate would be very low. As for food prices, we should keep in mind that fertilizer prices are up from double to quadruple a year ago, with natural gas prices remaining near historical highs, week to week, month to month. Natural gas is the input that produces fertilizer through conversion to anhydrous ammonia. Additionally, the Russia-Ukraine war is directly impacting their 15 to 30 percent market share of the world's supply of fertilizer, as well as grain products, which are reportedly rotting in the fields and on ships, and the ships are so far unable to reach foreign customers with viable or fresh grain products. Overall, my expectations that we've gone through in prior podcasts remain in place. High inflation, lower business profit margins, low business investment, which means low job creation, higher interest rates, and increasing government debt. After the September Fed meeting, the economy, as well as elections coming up, will motivate the Fed to pause in their tightening. Importantly, the Fed seems reluctant to sell amounts of their $9 trillion portfolio. They had announced previously a reduction in this portfolio, but it's been barely noticeable in the past couple of months. My new or highlight topic today involves the stock market. And we generally see years of uptrends broken by very brief periods of substantial sell-offs. That's the history. It's both easy and comfortable to watch the value of stocks as well as bonds go up month to month and quarter to quarter. We've just witnessed more than a decade of this experience, lulling pretty much all investors into a sense of security. But now we have our first wake-up call with the hope that all will be back to normal soon. Putting this hope aside for a few minutes, let's explore our situation in a bit more depth which I know can be uncomfortable for those hoping for a continuation of the asset appreciation trends. Pretty much anyone can pick pretty much any stock, bond, or commodity to see that a long-term trend of years is made up of many short-term moves that are both on that trend and counter to that trend. In the few minutes that we have, I want to highlight the S&P 500 index trends and the trend reversals for periods that have experienced initial declines percentage-wise that we've seen in the Standard & Poor's Index in the past several months. So I'm going to make comments on the Great Depression, the 70s stagflation, the tech boom, 2000-2001, and the 08-09 Great Recession. I'm going to provide a link that you can actually see these trends and counter trends if you like. And again, it's quite doable to Google some of these trends for more information. We are in a position where there are striking similarities to some of these past initial market declines and knee-jerk partial recoveries. We have some significant learning opportunities that we can apply day-to-day to managing our investment risks because actually we've been here before. We've been here a number of times for some different reasons. And as you know, we at UCLA Extension are all about education. Life is just 
too short to limit our learnings to our personal experiences and present situations, when so many before us have passed on to us so much that adds to today's problem-solving and scenario evaluations. I'd venture that many of us look at our own assets, including stocks, bonds, and real estate, and wonder whether we are heading to higher and higher levels this year and next, or are we at risk of asset values dropping off a cliff. My objective today is to give you a pretty unbiased and unemotional perspective to replace the drum-pounding 24-hour media cycle that trumpets the daily spins. If we go to the global financial crisis, we actually had initially a 20% decline, and we're going back into 2007, December, January. We had approximately a 20% decline, and then we had a rally of approximately 15%. What happened subsequently? We dropped 54% before the bottom was reached. And my focal point is that rally of 15%. After the initial decline, pretty much everybody got back on board for a few months. And that was right at the start of the 54% decline. The tech bust is very similar. Back in June, July, August, September of 2000, we experienced a decline of 30% in the Standard & Poor's Index. What was next? A 22% rally. Pretty exciting. Except for the fact that after that 22% rally, there was an additional 41% decline before the bottom was reached. And that bottom was reached only about a year and a half later in June of 2002. The bear market rally of 1973-1974. Why do I bring up 1973-1974? Because this is the most comparable for a stagflation scenario. The Standard & Poor's Index declined approximately 16%, had an 11% rally, and then over the next year or so, fell another 41%. Now, if we go back to the Great Depression, it's truly greatly depressing. Back in this period, after the stock market crash, there was a 49% decline, which is really pretty substantial. And that was followed by a 49% rally. So for those who love math, you know that if you drop from 100 down to, say, 50 to round it, and then you increase by another 50%, you're only up to 75, right? So the 100 went down to about 50, and then it went up to 75. And at 75, a lot of newspapers proclaimed that we were off to a new era of prosperity. However, over the next three years, the stock market dropped an additional 83%. So these, these are facts. I invite you to see them for yourselves. I'm providing a link to the Standard & Poor's 500 index chart over this entire period. So you can take a look at the recession periods yourself. You can take a look at the increases and the declines. My point now is we have just witnessed a pretty large snapback compared to the decline that we've had in the stock market this year. Based on everything else we've covered in this podcast and past podcasts, I absolutely encourage you to be very watchful and very careful about assuming that now is the time to 
really get into the stock market again or make large additional investments in the stock market. And actually what I'm saying equally applies to the bond market as we are looking at higher interest rates in the bond market, which will have a very negative effect on the bond prices. And ultimately, there will be impact in the real estate market. But my view is that in the real estate markets that have an undersupply of houses, Los Angeles being one of them, we will suffer to some degree like the rest of the country. But we may find that we have a stronger market in Los Angeles and the other markets that have had an underinvestment in real estate. With that, I wish you well. Again, be careful. I look forward to taking apart a lot more data that we will see at the end of August for the following podcast. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.